Hey, welcome to night school. No bang energy drink. So just want to get that out of the way. Just want to make it very clear that this statement right now is the extent of the bang energy talk that will be going on here. And that's a fact. Or is it? Or is it a fact? They're lying to you. Since everybody else is lying to you. Since everybody else is lying. Since everybody else is carrying out conspiracies. Maybe you are too. You know, what I want to talk about is something I've made reference to before, actually. You know, how annoying it is when people reference the book 1984 or call things Orwellian. And the point that I made before, probably a year or two ago, was that, you know, Orwell wasn't a prophet. And this is not taking anything away from Orwell, who I haven't read. (laughs) You know, I've never read 1984. And I imagine many of the people who reference 1984 haven't read it either. But it is one of those things that you absorb through cultural osmosis. Uh, But, you know, what I will say, though, based on what I know about 1984, is it wasn't prophetic. Because I know what the big beats are. I know the examples people use when they reference 1984 as a comparison to our reality. And, and, you know, with those big beats that they reference, they're not new, nor they're not new now and they weren't new then. The reason why 1984 seems to be so relevant is because these are just universal human tendencies and qualities, and humans tend to manipulate each other, they tend to... They, they tend to try to achieve power and control in very similar ways. And of course, the tools change, the words change, the people themselves change, but the tendencies don't. And so at any point in history, you could say, it's just like 1984. Oh, we're referring to, oh, it's the year 2000 B.C., Go back. Let's go back even further. 2000 BC is too soon. 2000 BC is too soon. Let's go back to the Sumerians. Sumerians, Sumerians, however you say it. Let's go back to Babylon. You could say, oh, Orwell predicted what they were doing too. Orwell predicted this, you know, thousands of years later. No, Orwell was riffing on. Things that we all have a tendency to do, and by by we all, I mean us as a civilized, developed people, a society. And a lot of it, I think, is just winging it. I don't think it's all conspiratorial, although it, you know it comes across that way. Not that conspiracies don't exist. I know I've made this point recently. But it's just, these are tendencies that people have, and Orwell pointed that out. At least as far as I know. Granted, I haven't read the book. But, you know, to get to the point I actually want to make this episode, you can tell who not to trust by who is referencing 1984. It's the people who aren't referencing 1984 who you can probably trust, or you're more likely to be able to trust them. If someone's not saying, Hey, it's just like 1984. 
Oh my God, Donald Trumpsfeld. He's just like he's Orwellian. He's Donald Trumpsfeld is Orwellian. Orwell predicted Donald Trumpsfeld. You know, there's that person, and then there's the other side, the the other end of the political spectrum, who's like, look at the woke people. All these woke people. They're just like Orwellian uh, 1984. Uh, you know, it's just, it's... The people who are using 1984 as a weapon are the people you should avoid. And not that they're wrong. They're actually right. So I'm not saying they're wrong in referring to this Orwellian presence that seems to come and go like the tide throughout human history. Although I wonder if there's ever really a time where it's not present. But it does seem like we go through periods where things get heated and people start using their 1984 missiles. No, you're like, no, your group, your political party's like 1984. No, yours is. You're, you are the guys who are doing all that Orwellian stuff. You know, it's people are throwing that at each other, and it's like, you're both right. You're both doing it. Trust the people who aren't referencing 1984. Trust the people who aren't referencing the books that they were assigned to read in college or even high school. I'll see people reference Catch-22, and it's like, that was a signed reading in, like, three different classes I took in college. And not to take anything away from Catch-22, but, you know, you'll, you'll, people will read these, they'll reference these books that they were assigned to read in college and be like, see, people really are like this. It's, it's social and cultural commentary, and it's like, of course it is. And it could have been written at any time in history. The only thing that changes is the, is the technology. And that's, I think, why something like 1984 is relevant, is it seems to... It's more modern. But, you know, it's the, it's the same thing with the Bible. Another book many people talk about who probably haven't read it. You know, how many people talk about the Bible, but they haven't actually read it? Probably just as many people, if not more you know, that talk about 1984 without having read it, which is me. But I have read the Bible, and, you know, it was just so funny to me. I know I've said this before, but the Bible is the, you know, the first, as far as I know, the Bible is the first place where the statement is made, there's nothing new under the sun. And that's something to keep in mind. Not that, you know, not that people can't be... You know, not that people can't come up with new ideas, or at least come at least come up with ideas that are such interesting interpretations of old ideas that they almost seem new. Not that people can't do that. Not that everything is just completely recycled and refurbished and identical to some other older version. Um, but you know, <clears throat> for the most part, it's like most things aren't new and. We have a tendency to look at people like Orwell and be like, he's a prophet. Oh, my God. Oh, have you have you heard of this guy, Orwell? He's a prophet. And his name lends itself to that. The name Orwell, I mean, it sounds good to say Orwellian. Orwellian. You know, it sounds good to say that. And so that lends itself toward the idea of him being a prophet, too. He's got a good name for that. Some things just kind of fit together. But no, he wasn't a prophet. Joseph Heller wasn't a prophet. And uh, these are just tendencies that people have. And they're always there, and they've always been there. 
and somebody at any point in history. The more oppressive a society is, you know, the more you're going to see these tendencies. And, uh, you know, and not necessarily oppressive as in a brutal, hands-on, violent regime, but just oppressive in the sense of trying to control you. And, and you know, and, and, and even though I'm saying everybody who volleys this 1984 Orwellian accusation, even though they're all right, they're also all wrong. Because they do notice some of these tendencies and rightfully point them out. Oh, hey, that's kind of like that's kind of like 1984. That's kind of like 1984. What you're doing? Even though you know they're right half the time. You know, I'm just throwing that out. I don't know the actual percent, but you know, even though they're right some of the time, they throw it out so much that they're also wrong a lot of the time too. They'll also look at something totally random. Oh, you're uh, you're tying your shoelaces that way. Kind of reminds me of 1984. <laughs> You know, it's like they'll they'll say it about everything. And when you say it about everything, yeah, you're going to be it's like the stupid cliche, not and it's actually not stupid, but it's you know, the the clock is a broken clock is right two times a day. Oh, that sounds Orwellian too. Talking about time. But yeah, it is just funny how you know, anybody who's throwing out some sort of reference to 1984, like it's some, oh, it's so profound. How about, send it, send an email to your college professor. Save it for your college professor. You know? If you're, if you're a functioning adult going about your daily life, save your, oh my God, it's, it's like 1984 with Donald Trumpsfeld. Donald Trumpsfeld is like the leader. He's changing facts and he's changing words. He's saying up is down. He's saying up is down. Have you heard these woke people? These woke people are saying two plus two equals five. It's like 1984. Okay, I'm done. I'm done talking about 1984. My point is, is that Trust the people who aren't making references to these cliche examples that are timeless. And they refer to how things always are and how they've always been. I mean, it plays into my last episode or one of my last episodes about how gaslighting is going on everywhere all the time. We try to single it out like, oh, gaslighting only happens when a husband is trying to manipulate his wife. It does happen then. But it's also happening all the time anyway. It's how people try to manipulate and control each other. It happens when your girlfriend calls you a hypochondriac, even though you know you're sick. I'm not going to name names here. But anytime you call somebody a hypochondriac, you're potentially gaslighting them. But, uh, and you're, and, and the blood's gonna be on your hands. The blood's gonna be on your hands when you find out they have an ulcer. An ulcer. But, you know, it's, it's the same idea that I was riffing on in the gaslighting episode where gaslighting is going on all the time between all people with any kind of relationship. It's going on between strangers. The stuff that people point out that's Orwellian, 
it's going on all the time. It's always been going on all throughout history. The technology changes, the words change, the people change, you know, the names of countries change. It's really the same thing. And that's not me dismissing it. That's not me pointing that out to say, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about these, you know, misanthropic, misanthropic, uh, cynical tendencies that we have to try to, you know, control each other, hold each other down, censor each other. I'm not saying don't worry about it, but just there reaches a point where you, you reference these pop culture examples so much that they lose their weight. And it just becomes the people doing those things who are using those things as the example. And, you know, if you've ever seen those, there's those maps you can look at online that show, I guess, DDOS, I think that's what they're called, denial of service attacks going on across the globe. It's, a, it's They're very cool. It makes you feel like you're in the future. But you can go to these websites that show kind of a dark map of the world with countries outlined and you see all these what look like colorful like comets flying back and forth between all these countries and cities and what it's showing is how many denial of service attacks how many like hackers are trying to shut down and attack other servers and this and that across the globe and that's almost what I see when I think of people throwing these cliche examples at each other. When I think of, you know, people on the far left or the far right, both accusing each other of Orwellian tendencies, I just think of it like that map, and they're just throwing these globs of color at each other, and it's all meaningless. Except it's not. It It's not meaningless. It just, you know, it's, it's them trying to shut each other down. It is sort of like this hacking example I'm using of... Uh, denial of service basically trying to shut each other down and the best thing to do is just not do it and I'm not trying to one-up anybody by saying oh I'm too good for Orwellian references I'm too good I'm, I'm, I'm above that that's not what I'm trying to do here I'm just saying maybe use something else use a better example don't use the books that you were assigned in school But, uh, I don't know, it goes, there's a quote that I want to read here. There's a quote that I want to read. You know, I've, I've mentioned Marshall McLuhan on here. And it's another example where there's this tendency to look at figures from the past decades and say, he was a prophet. This guy, he was a prophet. And, you know, I, I like the idea of prophecy. I would love it if in 50 years, 100 years, 10,000 years, somebody looks back on me as some kind of prophet. You know, if someone's going to remember you as anything, you know, might as well be a prophet, right? It's pretty cool. It makes you <laughs> it makes you very relevant. Basically what being a prophet is is being very hip. A prophet is so hip that he knows what's going to happen thousands of years from now. He's so ahead of the curve. But when you when people refer to prophets, it's always something very big. You know, oh, George Orwell was a political prophet. You know, the Bible has its its spiritual prophets. It's always something very large. Nobody ever talks about the prophecy of like fashion. Oh, he knew that cargo shorts were gonna be popular 
beginning in 1997. He was a prophet. Oh, he knew that people, he knew that in beginning in the late 1980s, people were going to, young men were going to gravitate toward music that just had beastly growls, not even any singing. Not even a falsetto power metal, you know, shriek of a, of singing. People are just going to listen to guttural growling. He was a prophet. He knew that was going to happen. Cargo shorts. He knew that for a while, kids were going to wear visors, colorful visors. You know, whenever someone gets called a prophet, it's always something very important. I don't think we notice those prophecies of unimportance nearly enough. And I, if I am a prophet, that's what I am. If I'm if I'm a prophet, I'm a prophet of unimportant things. My crystal ball shows me very minor little things that are around the corner. And when I do attempt to take credit for it, oh, I knew that was going to happen. People just say, "Shut up." Because, you know, part of my life, you know, I do feel this way. This is me being very self-pitying. Something that I I was not raised to be self-pitying. To me, I think it's one of the most unattractive things you can be. Self-pitying. But I'm going to be self-pitying for a moment. Sometimes I do feel that there is some sort of unspoken agreement to undermine my credibility. And I understand that's how every... (laughs) I understand that's how every schizophrenic delusion begins. There's some sort of secret, unspoken agreement to undermine my credibility. Sometimes it feels that way, though. I think that's what celebrities are talking about when they say they face so much adversity. When celebrities say, "Oh, oh, before I was famous, everybody told me I couldn't do it. Everybody told me I couldn't do it. And uh, I don't believe them half the time. Where are all these people who are saying, you're not going to be able to do it. You're never going to become a singer. Oh, you you think you're going to play in the NFL, huh? You you don't have the talent. You don't have the arm to be a starting quarterback in the NFL, in the National Football League. You just don't have the arm. I, I know people do that. I know people discourage each other. Uh, They often do it in the form of trying to be real with somebody. I had a friend who had a a history of mental illness, drug abuse, and uh, an arrest record, a, a fairly extensive arrest record, who wanted to join the military. And everybody told him, like, oh, yeah, yeah, man, because he's very a very likable guy, a very charismatic, likable guy. And every, all of his other friends were just like, yeah. And I, I just straight up told him, I was like, I don't think they're going to accept you. I, I don't, I think it's too late. I don't think that the military is going to accept you based on your record. And instead of getting mad at me, he was like, you know what? You're the only one who's told me that. You're the only one who told me what it is you know it is what it is and uh and it actually meant a lot to him because you know i wasn't trying to naysay him it was just a practical matter and sometimes you do have to say that if you somebody's your friend 
you do have to kind of, you know, shoot something down that they're saying. And I mean, I think about a friend of mine, you know, especially when things were really escalating with my drinking, I only had one friend ever say, you have a problem and you need to stop. And I think it's because people are afraid. I, you know, I'm, I think I'm somebody that somebody doesn't want to like, I, I think they figure I know. I think most of the people who know me figured I would know. But it still astounds me that only one person, other people might have addressed other issues with me, but I'm just amazed that only one person in my life called me out for drinking specifically, the way that I was drinking. And it wasn't that I was looking for that. It wasn't like it was some big dramatic thing. I'm just amazed that only one person thought to point that out. And you know what? I respect that. I think it helped me quit. Not that they told me something I didn't know, but it helped to have another voice say something that I already knew. It helped to hear it out loud. And... Um, uh, you know, so that, that can be helpful. You know, it can be helpful to have somebody tell you the reality. But to get back to what I was saying, you know, it's, there's this tendency for famous people, for celebrities, they, they talk about all this adversity they faced. And, of course, they faced a difficult road. It's difficult to not just be good at something, to not just put the work in to be good at something, but to, then to achieve some sort of public recognition and fame and fortune and all of that. So it's a difficult road, and there is adversity, but you'll hear this common, you know, this refrain about all these people who were, like, what people used to call their haters. I don't really hear that as often anymore, but, you know, you hear about that, and I sometimes wonder how much of that is in somebody's head. You know, how much of that was people just... Because sometimes I think that we live in this world that, you know, we're so used to people patting us on the back in this superficial way that when someone doesn't do that, we almost think that that's somebody naysaying us. I mean, to use the most obvious, you know, embarrassing example, it's almost like when someone doesn't like your posts... I've noticed that you you never like any of my posts. I noticed you never like any of my pictures anymore. And I was talking recently, I was talking about a walk I was on where I heard this dad talking about presumably his son and somebody else's son. And he was saying, he's like, I've noticed, you know, Daniel never likes Ziggy's photos anymore. He used to always like his photos, and this is something that parents are observing in their children. This is the world we live in. It's embarrassing, or it used to be embarrassing, to talk about the internet like it mattered, but clearly it does. And parents are noticing whether their kids are liking their friends' posts. You notice. You notice. You know. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you do. You don't have to care. But if you use any of these things, if you use social media, it doesn't mean you check. It doesn't mean you, like, review. It doesn't mean you go down the checklist. Oh, I see, uh, I see Jenny. Jenny liked my post. She hadn't liked my post in a while, so that means we're cool. It doesn't mean you're, do you're insane like that. But you kind of get a feel for it. 
You know, our connections to people are important to us. Even minor ones. You know, people matter to us. We matter to people. You notice when people are giving you attention. You notice when you're hanging out with people and whether or not they seem to be listening to you, laughing at your jokes. You notice when your girlfriend, who used to laugh at every single thing you said when you first started dating, you notice when she starts to roll her eyes more often than not. You notice when she starts to be short with you more often than not. We notice things. We're, we're a species that notices these things. And, uh, you know, but I, but I think there's a tendency because of that, because we do notice these things, whether we want to or not. I think you can program yourself or you can just naturally not care as much. But, I mean, you, you kind of notice when someone seems to be on your side or not. But I think we've gotten so used to people patting us on the back for every little thing. It's like you go to the bathroom and your parents clap. You know, when you're a baby, it's like uh, he learned how to do that thing that he's going to have to do the rest of his life. But I mean, of course, you need positive encouragement. I mean, that's good. I'm glad that parents clap when their kid learns how to use the potty by themselves. It's like I'm learning that with a dog. It's like when Batty does something that I want him to do or that impresses me. I want to give him positive feedback so that he thinks, you know, hey, this is good and I want to keep doing this. You know, if he catches the ball in his mouth without it touching the ground, I let him know that that's good. I want him to be good at catching the ball. I don't want him to just, I don't want him to be bad at catching the ball, you know. But you you give your kid positive reinforcement, I imagine, you know, in the same way that you do a dog. Um, but... I do think that we've gotten so into this culture of self-esteem, and I don't want to be one of these people who's like, oh, participation, oh, what, you want a participation trophy? You know, I I get so sick of these things that people say. (laughs) Um, But it is that sort of thinking um, where it's like, I think people have gotten so used to getting credit even when it's not deserved. They're so used to getting applause. They're so used to getting likes. They're just used to this superficial support system that when they pick up on somebody not playing into that, they are are very aware of it. It's that negativity bias. It's the one person in the crowd who isn't clapping. And you'll hear famous performers talk about that. They'll talk about being in a, a very crowded auditorium, musicians, comedians, and the, everyone's there to see them, but they will notice the person in the back of the room who isn't into it or isn't isn't outwardly into it. And that's often me. That's That's kind of me. Like when I used to go to a lot of shows, concerts, I was never the guy who was like up front headbanging. Dude, you guys rule. Oh my, you guys are so fucking good. Oh my God. You know, I was never the guy like just giving that extroverted attention. That's not how I engage with things. I'm an observer. Even the things I like, I tend to be more of an observer. So I can easily come across, and it's come across socially in my life too, where it's like, uh, you know, sometimes people don't know how to read me because I'm not necessarily the guy smiling or, or you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, we so sometimes we have a tendency to to think that we're facing adversity that isn't even there. And of course, it makes for a good story. 
That's why celebrities say that is because they have some sort of guilt over being famous and getting money and attention. And it makes them feel less guilty if they can say, well, I had all these people who hated me and tried to kill me along the way. Jennifer Aniston, before she was on Friends, they were people trying to kill her so that she would not be a famous actress. I always use Jennifer Aniston as the example, and I think it's totally unfair. I, I, I've invented this backstory for Jennifer Aniston, and longtime listeners of this show will know that I've done this to her before. It turns out, if Jennifer Aniston does have some sort of story about facing adversity, it's because I've talked so much shit about her, so much undeserved shit about her on this show. And you know what? I have no problem with her. For whatever reason, one day I decided to use Jennifer Aniston as an example. And I never stopped. I have a problem. (laughs) But anyway, you know, it's like there were people trying to kill. There were people with spears hurling them at Jennifer Aniston on her way to auditions. And just through her own hard work, she managed to get a gig on Friends. But she faced real adversity. No, but the reality is we have this tendency to invent adversity. It makes us feel like we got past something. And sometimes we did. Because I think sometimes you do, sometimes there are people who naysay, sometimes there are people who tell you you can't do something, but I just wonder how often that truly happens. I don't know. Prophecy. I prophesied that that person was going to be famous. I knew it, I just knew they were going to be famous. I'm the celebrity prophet. Which even is a, there is a guy called the prophet, but I think he does stuff with business. I'm the other celebrity prophet. I can tell you exactly who's going to be famous. I should start a talent agency. The Prophecy Talent Agency. That's where all of this is leading. But yeah, that idea of, of prophecy, and we have a tendency to look at certain people who were very intelligent and very perceptive, aware people, and say, oh, they were, they were a prophet. They knew exactly what was going to happen. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to take anybody's, I'm not trying to take anybody down from that pedestal. If you think somebody was a prophet, if you think George Orwell was a prophet, Please, I don't want to take, I don't, you know, I've got nothing against that, whatever. If that's what you think, that's what you think. But I think more often than not, it's just that there are similar tendencies that play out, and it's not that hard to predict them. I think if you pay attention to what people do, what they say, if you read history, you know, if you study just even a little bit of social psychology, you'll see that people behave very similarly, and the tools change, the people change, the words change, but you know, the same basic ideas often play out. And you know, Marshall McLuhan, somebody I've referenced on here before, and he 
is another one of those people where you look back at things he was saying in the 70s, especially about how technology was going to shape the future, and, and you just think, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This guy with a prophet. This guy with a prophet. And... Sure, you know, he, he he did have a very good read on how things were headed. And that was even, you know, he was saying many of these things before the internet was around. But he was just seeing what the hyper-connectivity of technology was doing and was going to do as it progressed. And uh, I have a quote from Marshall McLuhan I'd like to read. It doesn't have to do with his prophecies, his so-called prophecies, but I feel that it's worth mentioning, and it's only the small secrets need to be protected. The big ones are kept secret by public incredulity. Only the small secrets need to be protected. The big ones are kept secret by public incredulity. It relates very much to, you know, some of my own spiritual uh, epiphanies, discoveries, not that they're new. Again, not that they're new. Not, not, not that my experiences with these things are wholly mine or any different than somebody else's. But, you know, in the Gnostic tradition, I've had to experience them myself. And I feel that this is, even though this statement isn't, a spiritual statement unto itself. McLuhan wasn't talking about spirituality. It does relate to this, my spiritual beliefs, which is that, you know, the big discoveries are the ones that have been obvious all along. But I thought that, I, you know, I, I was convinced that, oh, I've got to delve into some sort of occult, some, some hidden pathway I've got to find that hidden pathway and learn to decipher unrecognizable symbols. No, in fact, that's not even good enough for me because my ego is so out of control. I've got to create my own symbols. I've got to create my own words. I've got to have my own experiences that are totally unique to me because it's all about me, me, and more me. And that can be part of the path. I mean, sometimes you have to go down that tunnel to realize, oh, you know, now that I'm out of the tunnel, it was there all along. It turns out the the big secret was only a secret because I didn't recognize it. It was so obvious that I never thought to think of it that way. And so this McLuhan quote definitely resonates with me on that level where the big the big secrets are kept secret by public incredulity i was incredulous and i have a hard time saying incredulity because i want to say incredulity that's one of those weird pairings of words where one form of it incredulous and i like words with just a d there's no g in that but i like words that just have a d but you say it with a g incredulity it's like a J sound or a DG, a DG, a DG or a J sound. You know, I like words like that where there's just a D, but you, but it has a J, incredulous. But I don't like the incredulity, incredulity. I don't like that you don't say the J in that version. And I don't know why that is, because I think incredulity sounds better than incredulity. 
credulity, duality. Maybe it is one of those ones where you can pronounce it either way, but I'm under the impression that you pronounce them differently. But anyway, uh, it's it's also very true, you know, while, you know, it does, that statement resonates with me spiritually, where it seems like the most obvious things were there all along, but they were hidden just because they seemed too obvious. And it's almost like I had to go down some tunnel and try to learn and decipher and translate something that I couldn't even learn, decipher, or translate in order to realize that what I was looking for was actually outside of the manhole. It was actually outside of the sewer. And all I had to do was look up at it. But that was just too obvious. And But this quote, it's not a spiritual quote. It's, you know, only the small secrets need to be protected. The big ones are kept secret by public incredulity. And I, I believe that's true politically. I believe it's true socially. I believe so many things are just too obvious to notice or point out. And we have this tendency to look for conspiracy. We have this tendency to look for those hidden things. Oh, the secrets. These politicians and their secrets, which they have. Of course they have secrets. But I believe that, as McLuhan implies, I believe those are the smaller secrets. I believe that the big secrets are actually so obvious we don't even notice them. They're the background. They're the backdrop. They're the setting. They're the set and setting that everything is playing out on. And uh, I don't actually want to dissect that quote too much more. I, I, I think that if you keep that kind of idea in mind, you'll start to notice it. You'll start to notice some of these bigger secrets that are out in the open, and it's their openness that disguises them the best. It's sort of, I mean, hiding in plain sight. That's a often repeated cliche quote. Hiding in plain sight. But there's a reason why hiding in plain sight works. You'll see, I mean, you know, I'm very into the mafia, and it's funny to me when you read about a guy who goes on the lam. The FBI is after him. He's trying to evade arrest. It happened in Sicily, in Sicily where you had these major mafia bosses who went underground, and it's like, he's probably in, uh, we think he went to uh, France. Oh, he, he might be hiding in, uh, you know, in all these faraway places, and it turns out he's actually in his home village. He's living in a farmhouse in his home village, and he's just living a very low-key lifestyle. Happened with Whitey Bulger to some extent. You know, there was all there were all these stories about Whitey Bulger, you know, the Boston Irish informant gangster, where, you know, he went on the lamb and there were all before he got caught, there were all these stories about him being in Europe. And maybe he did go there, but there were all these, you know, fancy stories about Whitey Bulger, he's in Ireland. He's in Europe. And it turned out he was just in California. He and his girlfriend were just in California, living in an apartment, hiding in plain sight. 
not to say people don't go deeper. I mean, Saddam Hussein was hiding in, you know, speaking of manholes, Saddam Hussein was hiding in a manhole. Sometimes people do hide. Sometimes big secrets do get hidden, too. It's not like it's a 100% true, this McLuhan quote. You know, sometimes big secrets are protected. But uh, I do feel that some things are just almost too obvious to notice. And now's the time to really think about that. In this time of everybody throwing 1984 at each other. It's like I'm, I'm almost imagining Democrats and Republicans or, you know, leftists and conservatives. I'm imagining them on two different sides of a fence just throwing copies of 1984 at each other. Now you're Orwellian. No, you're Orwellian. You are. You know, that's kind of how I'm imagining things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, like, with everything going on, that you know, I, I mentioned before how everybody's become a conspiracy theorist. Even very moderate people that I know. People that I never would have imagined would dig in, they would dig their heels into this idea that there are nefarious plots going on all around. But times of uncertainty do that to you. Times of uncertainty naturally make you paranoid. And when you have a lot of people paranoid, and not just a lot of people paranoid, but a lot of people who feel that they can't trust even the people close to them, When people are feeling that level of paranoia, where it's not just paranoia of the government, not just paranoia about this new civil rights movement, not just paranoia about the Coroni Violent, getting shipped to the Coroni Violent, not just paranoia about disease, China, but people are even feeling paranoid about the people in their lives. People feel paranoid because somebody doesn't like their post, probably. People feel paranoid because their girlfriend is acting cold. Their boyfriend is being mean. People are just worried. You know, and that sometimes it's easier to then worry about things you can't see. It's easy to be like, oh, well, you know, there's all this stuff bothering me in my life that's all around me and that I I interact with every day. But I'm going to worry about all these things I can't see that politicians are doing. I'm going to worry about this group of people who nobody knows who are secretly controlling everything. It's a coping mechanism in many ways. Not to get too Psych 101 about it, but I believe it's kind of a coping mechanism to be like, well, I'm going to worry about something I can't see because I don't want to deal with the things I can see. I don't want to deal with the things that I can actually make decisions toward and impact. So I'm just going to worry about everything that I can't impact.
and I'm gonna say it's just it's just like 1984. Because when people say that too, when someone says it's just like 1984, what you're doing is just like 1984. You're not offering much of a, a counterpoint. Really, it's just a pejorative. It's like calling somebody a bitch or a, or an asshole. When you compare something to some cliché literature, you're not actually making a solid counterpoint. All you're doing is calling it a name. You're basically just being like, yeah, well, you suck. And so look for the ways in which you do that. You know, you might think you're making some intelligent comparison or some witty reference, but are you really just telling someone they suck? Are you really just calling someone an asshole bitch? What you're doing is kind of Orwellian. That's a mildly educated person's way of just yelling bitch at somebody at a gas station. It doesn't add anything. But what you can do is not behave... I mean, the answer to everything is to not behave the way the other people who are a problem to you are behaving. It's to not play that game. It's resist not evil. You don't want to be playing the same game that somebody you despise is playing because then you become the same person. You become the person you despise. Is there a time to fight fire with fire? Yeah, you got to. You know, if somebody attacks you, there are situations that you can't get out of no matter how hard you try. But I would say look for the obvious. If you're worried about all these things hidden in the corners, look for the most obvious thing. Start with the most obvious thing. Don't start your treasure... I mean, people do that with treasure hunts. When I was a kid, my family and this other family would do Easter egg hunts, and there would be the golden egg. There'd be all these eggs hidden all over the place, but there'd be the golden egg, and I don't know what was even in it. Money? Maybe there was like a $20 bill in it? I don't know. Uh, But every once in a while, the golden egg, yeah, it would be hidden in some obscure place. One time it was hidden in the the spare tire of a Ford Bronco. That was a hard one to find. Somebody else found it, not me. But sometimes the parents would hide it in the most obvious place. You know, sometimes the most obvious place is the first place you should look. But being able to recognize what's obvious and what's not can be really damn confusing. But I do believe you can use your intuition to figure that kind of stuff out. You can listen to your intuition. Because your intuition will often lead you along the most obvious path. It's not going to... I mean, you know, the reason why I always say on this show, clear a path for your intuition, is because it is the most obvious choice. It is the most obvious way to go. But you have to clear it first. 
And that's why your intuition can sometimes confuse you. Sometimes you don't feel like you can go with your gut because your gut's infested with uh, who knows what. But you can clear all that out. You can hack away at that path, that foliage that's blocking your intuition from doing the job that it's meant to do, which is to make things obvious to you and for you. And I know I'm not giving too many concrete examples here, but I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to make it too obvious. <laughs> this land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free. 